0: We are in Ezekiel 10, all right, welcome Marla, Um, Ezekiel, but Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, and 11, if you remember, those are of one, they're one vision, so unfortunately spreading it out from before Christmas, and then coming back, resuming, and we won't even finish it today, uh, makes it a little bit hard to kind of see what the whole thing is about. But, But generally speaking, what's happening is Ezekiel, remember he's, He's of the priestly caste, although he never served as a priest. He's in Babylon. He's one of the early exiles. all right. But the temple has not yet been destroyed. That will happen in 597 B.C. So he's in, he's in Babylon, but the Lord's giving him visions of the destruction that's to come of the temple. That's Solomon's temple that will happen uh, eventually. This is generally how conquering people go. First they go through and they wipe out the things that they have to to kind of Bring you captive, take away the most important people, the governors, and the you know, and then put up a puppet government in its place. Same thing with the priesthood; take away the the people trained to be priests and put in some sham priests in their place, right? Um, but then when those things don't go well, then they just come through and wipe the whole thing out and <laughs> just, just start over, right? And that's what happens with Babylon, uh Rome. Same thing happens with Rome. You have the puppet government of Herod, right? All the, all the Herods, by the way, Antipas and Herod the Great, and the others, right? And you have these puppet priests who aren't really there. Even Herod builds a new temple, even though it's he wasn't authorized to do so by God, and you know, and God's glory never dwells in that temple. That doesn't mean that His word wasn't being proclaimed there, here, and there, right? So the whole thing's a sham, right? And then ultimately, it doesn't work because it's a sham, and so then. Um, which, which uh, Roman emperor was it? Nero, who came through and just leveled Jerusalem in eighty seventy, 70 Again, just like Babylon did 600 years before. All right. Um, but they never want to level the whole everything. So they don't burn like the farmlands and the vineyards. And they just, because they want that. That's, that's like wealth. <laughs> it's produce. But they'll destroy any seats of power. All right. So that's uh, Ezekiel. He's in, he's in Babylon. He's looking back. And God's declaring to him the judgment that will come upon the people. And remember, the judgment of Babylon is not because Babylon is a tyrant government, although it is, but God allows Babylon to conquer because of their rebellion against God's word. All right? So you might think about like the attacks on marriage that I talked about in the sermon today. Right? Well, Why is God allowing us to experience that? I'll let you answer. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not an answer. It is an answer, but it's not the answer I was looking for. Why would God allow us to experience, like, just basically undermining of what? Sex, marriage, family, right for repentance, right? Uh, It's very easy to see when when things are kind of okay, and then you're like, well, it's kind of okay. But when you look around, you're like, whoa, then, um, I mean, I think what's quite clear today is it's Christ versus culture. God's word against culture. But, that, but in a way, that's actually a blessing. Because then uh, you intentionally live apart from the way that your friends, neighbor, even family live. And uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's easier, but there is something about like, like I, I, we, can't, we can't live like that. And so then you seek out God's word and find, to find uh, instruction there. All right. So that's, that's the context. And what's going to end up happening here is a sign of God's judgment against Jerusalem and the temple is God's glory. Remember the glory cloud? We talked about that. It, it's, it's in the holy, most holy place and then it's going to make its way out. And finally, not this week, but probably next week, it'll just leave the temple altogether. And then that's it for the temple. God's glory never appears again until, no, until Jesus. That's right yeah we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth as John says alright so for 600 years there's no presence of God's glory appearing to the people which uh, that'd be pretty rough I think
1: <laughs>
0: no there's still prophets preaching there's still his word being given right but that that um, indwelling that dwell that obvious dwelling of God amongst his people well it's that's not going to be obvious now, like we talked about, when, oh no, none of you were in this, the catechumens this week. Um, when uh, Jacob's dying, he says to his sons, the Lord will go with you down into Egypt and he'll bring you back out again. But as you know, uh, maybe know, they end up in Egypt for 400 years, <laughs> right? So there you have a promise of God, which he keeps, right? But yet they have to wait quite a while. So maybe that's the hard part. The waiting is the hardest part, right? So is it was the
1: 600 years before Jesus came that it was the last time that God was really
0: present. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, this is what's really incredible when, like, when Jesus comes into the temple. You know, there's people who have been waiting and watching for him when he's a little baby, you know, 40 days old, or when he's 12 years old, or like this is this hasn't happened in anyone's lifetime, or even in like memory. Um, now there there were. They had the illusion of it because they're still offering sacrifices. They're still um, keeping the prayer offices, you know. But it, it's performatory. It's not, it doesn't have that obvious dwelling of God with his people. Of course, there are those who are doing it not as a performance, but actually out of faith. So there's that too. But that's the church. It's always mixed up. There's people who are doing it out of obligation. There's people doing it in faith. And you can't always tell the difference. Yeah. All right. So uh, chapter 9, if you remember, was kind of rough. That was last week. So we have these six men plus one dressed as a priest with linen, and they're sent out to destroy the city. And we said they're men, quote-unquote, but really they're angels uh, who have the appearance of men. Um, But there was a promise in this, and this is one of the things that I found very encouraging as we've been reading through Ezekiel, is it's pretty rough themes of judgment, right? Uh, and there's actually wonderful gospel, but like just whole chapters worth once we get to like chapter 40, <laughs> 44. But,
1: um,
0: but even so, uh, one of the things that
1: uh, the people
0: of faith can do is you'll, you'll actually identify, what are we going to call these um, uh, hints at the gospel maybe? I mean, there's always gospel, but it, it just seems to be overwhelmed by these themes of judgment. But there's always a promise. The promise keeps getting repeated through it all. And so in chapter 9, it was in um, verses, I think verse 4. So just to remind you about this promise. And the Lord said to him, this is to um, the one with the priestly garment, the linen guy, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. All right, so everybody else is going to get wiped out except for those who have the mark put on them, which we talked about, like the mark of Cain, which protected Cain, right? Um, and then you can't help but hear the mark of the cross is put on us in baptism that marks us as one redeemed, thereby we escape the judgment on the last day, right? Yeah, yeah, we talked about it last week. Were you here last week? Yeah, Revelation 7, Revelation 9, Revelation 14. <laughs> I gave you some citations on last week's sheets. They're there if you need them from last week. All right. So even though the whole city is being destroyed as well as the temple and the glory is going (laughs) to disappear, yet there's that promise that those who woe and lament, what did it say? Who sigh and groan, um, that they, that that is who recognize their sin and uh, lament it, you know, in repentance, they are marked. And we talked about the mark is actually a Hebrew Tao which looks a lot like a T, also looks like a cross. Which may be coincidence. We as Christians don't think that's coincidental. Um, The Jews think we're silly. But that's okay. They're free to think that. Not all of them. Not all of them. Yeah, that's true. All right. So then the end of chapter 9, and behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist, so he's a scribe, he's a priest, brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded me. Right? Uh, Then I looked, and now chapter 10 is going to sound very familiar. It sounds a lot like chapter 1. So, uh, not exactly sure why, but we have kind of a similar vision um, with a little bit more detail. If you have the handout, I described it this way. (laughs) Uh, We get the impression that Ezekiel is taking notes as he observes the scene before him, sometimes reporting the action, but more often attempting to verbalize what he saw. It alternates sometimes confusingly between narration and description all right so it sounds like chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 9 but i think john's got uh, john's apocalypse his revelation is the same way it's like he's just trying the best he can to describe what he's seeing well you know the streets are you know like the walls are like pearls like uh, there's stones i don't i don't know whatever it's beautiful <laughs> don't you feel that way when you're reading it but nice nice attempt patrick Patrick. Okay, never mind. He's not gonna pay attention to me. Let's read it and then we'll talk more. All right. So chapter ten. Well, it's pretty long, but I think we can read the whole thing. Who wants to read? All right, go for it. Yeah, just right, right at the top. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that
2: was over the head of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire and like a throne. And he said to the man, go in, London, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen take fire from between the whirling wheels and between the cherubim he went in and stood beside the wheel. Wait- oh, no. And the cherub-, cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was <coughs> like a sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. They went, they went in any of their four directions, without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their wings and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called the many hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the cherubim.
0: Reverend Bar, Yeah, the Bar.
2: And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted, up their wings to mount from the earth the wheels did not turn from beside them when they stood still these stood still and when they mounted up these mounted up with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in them and then the glory of the lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Shebar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar canal. Each one of
0: them was so All right. <laughs> you got it? You can see it all now?
2: <laughs> uh,
0: very clear. Very clear. Yeah, wheels within wheels and the burning poles and all of that. Yeah. And he keeps referring to the river Chabar. That's reminding you that what he's seeing now is... It's the same thing he saw in chapter one. That's when he was river, by the river Kabar. Right. So if you remember from chapter one, or if you don't, it's fine, I'll tell you, that there are four cherubs, or cherubim is plural for cherub. So the four cherubim or four cherub cherubim that are holding up the throne. And in that vision he was seeing into the heavens. So above the firmament, then there's these four cherubim, and they're the ones carrying the throne. I If you know, like, ancient world, what are we doing here? Okay. It it looked very awkward. Uh, Anyway, no, I think we've seen this in the ancient world, right, where there's, there's people that carry the king's chair, right? There'll be one at each corner. It's the same idea, except these are angelic beings. And here, they have their wings, but they also have little hands under their wings, which is kind of strange. You can find pictures of this. People attempt to try to demonstrate it, but everything's burning. So there's a, there's flame underneath the throne, and the, it sounds like the angels themselves are of fire. Of course, the seraphim we know are angels of fire. Um, so that's a different class. Uh, I do mention somewhere on the handout. I don't know how much of it we'll look at, but uh, the Jews after after the time of Christ. So we're talking. First, second, and following centuries, they say that the wheels are another class of angelic beings. Which is kind of interesting. They call them the Ophanim, I think. I put it on here somewhere. Ophanim. Look at. Uh, da, blah, blah, blah. Nope, I don't see it. I thought I put it on here. Where is it? 10, 8 through 17. Oh, there they are. Angels, the Ophanim. Right? So you have the Cherubim, the Seraphim, and the Ophanim. Three categories of angels. And if you want to read more about that, read Revelation 4. Right, so there's a bunch in there. Uh, or you can look at other post. This is after the time of Jesus, but Jewish writings. First, actually, First Enoch is before Jesus, 200 years. And then things that we found at um, at Qumran. Those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you, there's two documents there: the Songs of Sabbath Sacrifice and the Foundations of Fire. Talk about talk about the uh, the wheels being angels. Anyway. I've seen some art. You've seen some art? Yeah. Well it says they have faces, right? Well, it's not so clear, is it? No. Do the wheels have faces? Yeah, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. It doesn't have to make sense. Right. That's what I was trying to assert for you. It's like here, Ezekiel is given to see something that's beyond you know our comprehension due to our limitations, right? And yet he's given to see it, and he does his best to describe it, right? Uh, now, the other thing you want to see here is, remember, this, this scene with, the, with the, uh, the throne and the angels supporting the throne and the wheels, and they're moving in directions and all of that. This was the vision of heaven, but we have a corresponding earthly vision at the same time, which is the same glory of the Lord is dwelling in the most holy place of the temple, I remember back in chapter eight, opposed to the glory of God, was that statue of what was her name? Do you remember who it was? Yeah, there was some idol that they had set up a statue opposed to. The statue carved in of oh the statue of jealousy, eight verses three and four. So God's glory is like dwelling in the temple, but opposed to him, they have set up an idolatrous statue, right? Well, he's not going to abide by this for very long. He's like, fine, I'll just leave. (laughs) That's what he does. That's what he does. But it's taking many chapters for it to happen. Uh, So there's a correspondence between the things happening on earth and the things happening in heaven, all through the Old Testament. And actually, this is central to our New Testament worship, right? So like when you gathered around the throne, we also say it's the altar of God. We say it's the heavenly throne. That the feast that we receive is the feast that is to come, the heavenly feast. That we're gathered with saints and angels in the whole host of heaven, and yet, what do we see? Saints and angels and the whole host of heaven? No, but it's true. It's still there. I suppose if we use some more drugs, maybe we'd see it, but that's my joke. That wasn't funny, though. <laughs> oh. All right. So there's a. Some of our liturgical themes are a little bit unhelpful here. Because we'll say, how do we say it in the one prayer? A foretaste of the feast to come. As if what we receive at the sacrament is not the same feast that we receive in heaven. It's the same feast, and yet it's received by faith and not by sight. So is it a foretaste, or is it actually the same feast? It's the same feast. Yeah, see, that's that's where I think we misunderstand that idea of foretaste. And that language has only been around since the 70s. I asked some people. They told me who came up with the language. Anyway, uh, I understand what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, trying to say it is the same, but it's also not quite yet, right? At the same appetizer. time. Yeah, but see, appetizer or sampler is just, do you receive all the gifts that God has promised you in eternity at the sacrament? Forgiveness, life, and salvation. Yeah, is there anything that we're not getting there that we're going to get in the resurrection? No. So that's why I don't understand sampler or appetizer.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. But actually it actually, you know, there will be still others ministering to us in heaven too in his place, but of course we'll see him face to face. That's the distinction. Is that now we see it by faith, then we'll see it by sight. So I don't know. I mean, if you're very imaginative, Marla thinks like a child because you have to teach children, right? It'll okay. be
1: much glorious.
2: Right. Right. But I,
0: but I think it's right for us to, to use our imagination, sanctified by God's word, and imagine that we're gathered at the altar with those whom we've loved who have died or with the saints and angels. Um, I've encouraged the congregation to think about someday, maybe, actually depicting angels having, you know, angels actually depicted on the walls or statuary or something like that. Just as a confession of what we actually believe is true. Not because the statue is the angel or something, right? Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with the cherubim in the Most Holy Place, which are in this vision. There's the statue of the cherubim, and there are the two cherub that are touching their wings above the altar, or excuse me, above the uh, Ark of the Covenant, right? On the lid. Are those actually cherubim? Well, no, because they're not moving. Cherubim move. But they represent them, and they confess what's actually true. So when, the, when you would see those, well, you wouldn't, because you didn't get to go in the holy place, but they told you that they were there. <laughs> and you imagine, there's these large cherubim in there. Uh, but there actually are cherubs there. Just not, you just can't see them. And so the statues represent what's actually true. By faith, not by sight. So it's the same, actually, as as our. How did, we? Mike figured out how big those cherub cherubim were—the two statue ones, not the on the ark, but the ones on—they were very tall. Yeah, like twenty feet. So twenty feet angel statues. Somebody start saving up. Put, put them at the doorway coming in. You know, with flaming swords or something, like none shall pass. All right. <laughs> oh, let's see. What else should we talk about here? Uh, look at my notes on verse 2, just to refresh here. Uh, with the sacred fire and the priest. We know I mean, he's dressed like a priest, he's acting like a priest. Only a priest who'd been set apart by God could touch that fire. Uh, there, are, there are two characters that deal with the fire at the tabernacle and then they're struck dead because they were <coughs> not ready to do so. Sons of-, sons of Aaron. Do you remember the sons of Aaron? Who were they that touched the fire and they weren't authorized? Do you, anybody remember their names? Oh uh, yeah, we'd fail at the Bible Trivia, wouldn't we?
1: It
0: starts with an N. starts with an N? And Abihu. Yeah, good job. Nadab and Abihu. Yep, Nadab and Abihu. Thank you, Don. Good. Uh, they weren't authorized and so they were struck dead. Then... Where's yeah? Where's Ron? Ron would know. Ron would know. <laughs> Isaiah six, you have another vision of heaven, and there Isaiah's taken up into the heaven somehow, vision or otherwise. And but there it's the angel that takes the tong with the coal, the burning coal, and touches his lips to purify him for office. Isaiah doesn't touch the coal. The angel is the one authorized to bring the coal to him. So we have that, um, and maybe we talk so much about Revelation, but we haven't read it. Just look at this from from the seventh seal. All right. So, he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Lots of sevens here. Then another angel, having a golden censer, that's the thing you put the charcoal in and then you put the incense on it, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the, all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. Remember, that was the one we talked about last week that um, Solomon had set up, but then all of the idolatrous kings had just moved because it was too small. And we talked about, I think, was it Ahaz that built a much bigger one? Yeah. All right. So here it is again, that little uh, altar of incense that Solomon built. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then look at this. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. All right, just like we saw in chapter nine, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. All right, so that fire—we've talked a lot about fire. Fire can be used to purify, to cleanse. Fire can also be used to burn and destroy. Right, just like water, actually, it's the same way. Right, both fire and water. Um, so, in, like in baptism, you see both destruction and. Death and resurrection, destruction and new life. Yeah. Because it does both. So here the same fire that's that's causing the incense to rise along with the prayers of the saints, which is a blessing, is also then thrown to the earth and it brings destruction. Noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. So you have to imagine that these ancients knew about fire raining down from heaven. I mean, does that ever happen? Fire coming down from heaven? Sodom and well, right. So you can go back to the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Fire and brimstone. Or In Egypt. Right. But volcanic eruption. You know, maybe they know about that. You have the story of Elijah where the fire comes down. Maybe that was some kind of asteroid or something, right? It could be a natural phenomenon. It could be supernatural. It doesn't really matter. Is that... Elijah offered the sacrifice. God brought the fire to consume the sacrifice. How that happened, it doesn't really say. Of course, there is that supernatural fire that indicates God's presence in the tabernacle, right? And it moves. We also have stars that seem to be natural, but also act in unnatural ways, like leading the, the wise men. What's that? Pentecost. There's fire alighted on the people. Again, supernatural. So. Good. All right, so there you have that whole... Poles of fire coming down, and again, fire of judgment. Um, speaking of today's sermon, the fire of judgment coming down upon the earth does sound like Sodom. I noted that in ten verse two. And just in case anybody tries to tell you otherwise, the wicked city infamous for homosexuality. <laughs> There's lots of people today say, "Oh, it wasn't. They weren't. It wasn't because they were homosexual." Okay. Uh, well, I, go reading the story again and tell me what you think. Now, people can dance around the Bible all they want. But, yep. Uh, and then if you want to actually, so here it's being prophetically told, the actual destruction of Jerusalem by fire by the Babylonians is in Second Kings 25 and the corresponding Second Chronicles 36. So he's not just making it up. I mean, it is prophetic. He, didn't. He, had, he sees it by faith here, given by vision, but it does actually happen too. And there's archaeological evidence. So as they excavate in Jerusalem, they find evidence of the Babylonian destruction in particular. All right. Uh, we talked a lot about the cloud, but it's worth bringing up again. The house was filled with the cloud. You notice it's called a house, sometimes called temple, sometimes called house, because it's the dwelling place of God. All right, um, but again, that cloud is the cloud, the cloud that led the people of Israel in the wilderness, right? Yeah. Remember that cloud at night at night, though was it a cloud of f- cloud or was it a pillar of uh, pillar of fire, right? right. Yeah, fire and, and cloud. Thank you, Marla. Um, and so it dwelt in the tabernacle, and then uh, more permanently. In the temple, of course. Until the temple is destroyed. And then the cloud disappears. And like I said, for 600 years it's gone. Until, uh, as John confesses, the word, made, the word uh, was made flesh and it tabernacles amongst us. And we beheld his glory. So we have both tabernacle and glory in John 1.14, put together as Jesus. Of course, it's not Jesus is not that impressive of a temple. <laughs> but, I mean, the Gospels do say, we, uh, or you can even quote Isaiah if you prefer, you know. What good can come from that? I mean, we, we looked on him whom we pierced, right? He was a worm but not a man, right? We looked, he was nothing to look at. And yet that was the, the temple and the glory of God dwelling amongst men. So uh, Luther would rightly remind you to beware of what he calls the theolo- being a theologian of glory, Right? And he would, he would argue for you, this is from Heidelberg, 1518, instead to be a theologian of the cross. All right, so what did he mean? Theologians of glory are, uh, let's see, to use today's parlance, are looking for uh, offerings, attendance, buildings, uh, and spectacular worship. That's what they want. Yeah? So impre- impressive things. Right? And then if we have impressive things, then God must love us and be pleased with us, right? Uh, Luther says, no, actually God reveals himself most under weakness, under sickness, and, and in sickness, and poverty, and need, right? Because their faith is active. When you, don't, when you don't have, and when you don't see, then faith is required.
2: Which,
0: I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't have spectacular things. But the danger is that you put your trust in them and and the faith takes a back seat. Say, well, surely God's with us because I got the the goosebumps up the back of my neck today because the brass and the timpani and the whole thing was, the choir was great. And wow, really got into it, which is really hard to pull off week after week for one thing. (laughs) And then two, how is that any proof that it was actually God? Like I've had that same experience at a rock and roll concert, right? (laughs) I was like, wow, that was really great. I really got into it. Not anymore. I'm not easily impressed anymore. They're usually just too loud and noisy. And, yeah, anyway. But sometimes. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, I gave you a note about the house versus temple. It's at the bottom there. Um, yeah. It's Ba'it. It it's just means house. Usually translated as house of Yahweh. By the way, in Ezekiel, this is the last time it's going to be called the house of Yahweh. So, Yes. The glory departs and then it's no longer called the house anymore. Right. Makes sense, right? It's not your house anymore if you don't live there. Right? Yeah. But it will come back again in chapter 44. But it won't be the same temple. It'll be the, what we call eschatological. I use that big word for you because you like big words, right? The, the heavenly temple. All right? And then it'll be called the house of God um, again. And of course, that's a fulfillment of, the, of what we have now in the church. You know, we are the temple of God we're the dwelling of the Holy Spirit We're, you know Christ is our David right the king who dwells forever his kingdoms not of this world but but it is eternal and we are a part of it so that fulfillment yeah this is the house of God I've actually been to a church that um, put that like above the doorway going in something like that I think quoting maybe a psalm I'm trying to remember what psalm so every time you know um, let us go into the house of the Lord or something like that. It says above, above the doorway just to remind people. Again, it, that doesn't make it a reality but it confesses what we actually believe is true. All right. Good. So that's chapter 10. I don't know. Do you have anything else in there that you want to talk about? You can go back and watch and listen to the discussion about chapter one if you want online. It's just, it's kind of a crazy vision, isn't it? But you got the idea Alright, now we're going to go back into the temple. Chapter 11. And we're not going to do the whole thing. We'll just do a few verses here. 1 through 13. Who wants to read? You can't see it? Too far? Yeah, we're, we're, we'll eventually get a much bigger screen. <laughs> I'll read it on my Bible. Yeah, no, that's fine. It can be a different translation. That's yep, fine. NIV. Okay. Then the
1: Spirit lifted me up and brought me to
0: the gate of the house of the Lord,
1: that faces east. There at the entrance of the gate were 25 men, and I saw among them uh, Je- Hannah' son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaniah. Good job.
0: Le- leaders, leaders of the people. Not to be confused with Benihana. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. The Lord, the Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice to the, in this city. They say, haven't our houses been recently rebuilt? This city is a pot, and we are the meat in it. Therefore, prophesy, therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. That is what you are. That what that is what you are saying, you leaders in Israel. But I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and deliver you into the hands of foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and and you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. All right. Now as I was prophesying, Elatiah son of Benaniah, died, then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Alas, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel?
0: Oh boy. This is the gospel of the Lord. There we go. Thanks. Okay, thank yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so now, uh, this is actually, I think, we haven't seen this for a while, that the spirit put his hand upon him, or lifts him up and takes him. We'll see quite a bit of this throughout the rest of the book, right? So um, we have to be careful about about that language of the spirit, I suppose, uh, because spirit can mean, it can be lowercase s or capital S. There's no capitalization in the Bible, either Hebrew or Greek. So it's left to our interpretation. Um, And so the 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 there, if I click on this little letter, yeah, it goes back to chapter 3. Um the, the is also interpreted. So it could be then my spirit or the spirit. Right? And by the spirit we mean the Holy Spirit. Um, but this is always the question, right? When it comes to the, the acts or the works of the spirit. I think a lot of people, hmm, they confuse um, their spirit or the spirit of the age with the Holy Spirit. Right? But it's not hard to actually distinguish our spirit versus the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit only does what the Father and the Son have given him to do and say. So you can distinguish the work of the Spirit from the work um, of the Spirit of the age or our Spirit. Hi, Dorothy. Um, our, Our Spirit often, you know, we're led in directions that are contrary to God's Word. So obviously that's contradictory to the Holy Spirit. But then, of course, as we believe in baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit who directs our lives, Right? and shows us the way we ought to go. And he does so by the word of God. There are Christians even who believe that there are gifts of the spirit that aren't described in God's word. Of course, then always the question is, how do you know that's God's spirit and not your spirit or an evil spirit, right? So this is always the challenge with spirituality disconnected from God's word. And uh, so I want to warn you against that. And obviously the spirit of these people is to devise iniquity and give wicked counsel. (laughs) And they're lying as well. The lies of the false prophets actually can be, there's at least two different kinds. Sometimes it's like, peace, peace, where there is no peace, that's Jeremiah, right? The false prophets in his day are saying, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And there was clearly not, right? Here, these people are saying that there's no escape. We're all just meat in a cauldron. So just die. It's like, well, that's a false word too. And it seems like, hmm, I'm going to suggest that Ezekiel kind of falls for it. Because look at verse 13, what he says when Benaniah, or no, is it Pelatiah, excuse me, the son of Benaniah dies. He says, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? But is that what God said? No. And especially back in chapter 9, uh, 9 verses 4, we should probably just look at it again. 9, 4, 6, and 11, I think is what I wrote. But some of you weren't here, so it's worth remembering. The Lord God said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh over all the abominations. So there we have a promise of um, protection. Verse 6, uh, utterly slay old and young men, maidens and young, little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the, the mark. All right? And then even verse 11 again, the man with, cl- I have done as you have commanded me. Uh, but we had this, we talked about this remnant language from even earlier. God is always preserving those who who are, are faithful to him, so this idea that he's going to destroy all the remnant you know, it's almost a statement of unbelief, right but of course, Ezekiel is right in grieving over the death of his kinsmen, <laughs> right so uh, somebody asked me before church this morning he's like, "Well, what's this world coming to uh, you know is it the end and uh, of course, I said, yes, like what well, we
2: well, <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I don't know when the end will come, but I know we're in the end times. We have been since Christ came again because he said, you know, he told us what's going to happen and then we see these things happening all the time. Um, do they seem to be getting worse? Maybe, you know, certainly locally, you know, for our country. Um, but what, what is a Christian given to do? To despair and say all is lost and we're all going to die and well, God has forgotten us? No, of course not, Right. We, we would be about the things that God has given us to do and to be, even if we're the only ones sitting here and out two miles out of town, out of Random Lake, and we're the only people who actually like like marriage and like give it into marriage the way that God has ordained and everybody around us has like completely gone off the rails. So what? Right? We're the remnant. Now, of course, we lament over that and we would grieve over even our own family who decided to you know, become animals, or I don't know, <laughs> live in a polycule. You know about polycules? No. Yeah. You don't want to. No. This is just many partners all in one home. Oh. You know, kind of. Some are. mean, eh, anyway. you can watch videos. <laughs> you can watch videos. There's lots of videos. It gets a little confusing, right? Right. And that's I mean, that is God's judgment upon them. They wanted to do these things, and so God said, okay, go ahead. Anyway, yeah, but we can still grieve over that, and I think that's what Ezekiel's doing. It's like, don't destroy everything. Well, um, you know, these are those who have refused the work of the, the Spirit, right, in repentance. All right, so, so that's the first point.
1: So he says, I'm going to
0: bring you out of this... Uh, where, where do you want me to go here? Uh, so you, do, you will by the sword
1: and then you will know. That I oh, yes. And then you know, I will bring you out of the mess and deliver you <laughs> to strangers. So it's like what, it seems like some of those
0: are, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, right. So we've talked um, throughout this whole study. I think the categories that um, we as Lutherans have, uh, actually many Christians have these categories. I think maybe we got it from Augustine. I can't remember. I think that might be true. Uh, is that there is God's alien work. That is the work that he'd rather not be about. And then his proper work, which is the mind of God, what he really wants to be about, which is grace, mercy, forgiveness, life. He doesn't really want to be about death, destruction, doom, you know, destroying those who are in unbelief. But he has to be faithful to his own word and his character, which that, that is the judgment for rebellion against God. It doesn't mean he likes it or he enjoys it. Right. And and I would argue there's a note on here somewhere about that. I don't think Ezekiel is enjoying this preaching He's gonna enjoy this <laughs> preaching either. And we've talked about this. I mean, you know, it I don't think I said it quite like this last time, but maybe I could this time. Is there is the danger that the preacher falls into a kind of joy in preaching judgment for sin. You know. Especially if it's in second person language, so um what we call that, second-order discourse. So, yeah, unless you repent, you're all going to die. Ha! <laughs> you know, that kind of preaching. Um, but I, somebody said this recently, and I, I don't remember who it was, but that when, when, we're, when we're called to preach the, that, le, that word of judgment, like, it should, as best we can, I'm just not all that emotional a person, as far as, I don't really show that much, I guess. But that you still indicate that you're taking no pleasure in this and saying these words. But it's just what God has given me to say. And that we should, and that, I know pastors that get real weepy when they preach the law. And that's their character. It's just not me. I don't, I just don't get that weepy about much of anything. All right. So, unfortunately. So, that makes it hard for me, in particular, to demonstrate. I'm not really getting, I'm not really enjoying this, you know. But, Anyway. And so that's Ezekiel too, as well. But I, but it's but that's also communicating the mind of God. So you you hear um, you hear God. I mean, Jesus weeps over the death of his of his friend Lazarus, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty good indication that he doesn't he doesn't take pleasure in in the in the death of the wicked, but that they repent and believe, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he grieves over death, so much so that when his friend dies, he weeps. Yeah, like us. yeah well, actually, yeah, just like us. So that, that is the right response, actually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people try to do this with funerals and like, undermine the whole thing, in my opinion, and say it's a celebration of life without acknowledging the death. And you know, it's really creepy when they're singing like happy songs and there's a casket, and there's a person who barely looks like themselves in there. Didn't they do a good job? (laughs) I like that. I always joke about that. We can thank, we're studying this, right? We can thank Joseph um, in Egypt for that, bringing that tradition of embalming to us. Um, But anyway, I don't know why Christians do it, but we do. Anyway, so that doesn't mean we can't celebrate the the gift of the resurrection and the life that God has promised us. But we still have to grieve. We We still weep with those who weep. You know, so don't, we don't deny the reality of what's there at the same time while proclaiming the promise. Does that make sense? So it's both words are getting always proclaimed to answer Matt's question. Right? God is saying both words here. He's saying there's judgment for those who are wicked and there's escape for those who are saved. And it's the same word from God that's doing it. Because actually by destroying the wicked, he's saving those who, who are faithful. Because they're the ones who are dragging the whole nation, the false priests, the false prophets, the elders. They're the ones who are dragging these people into wickedness by their own actions. So
1: he's talking to multiple groups of people there. Mm-hmm. Says, you shall fall here. Yeah. You shall go this, and then you to go
0: this. Guy. Right, exactly. So some, are, some have spoken to Ezekiel, right, and some are spoken to these false, what do they call them? The 25 men. And some of them are by name. By the way, these are just common names. We don't really know who these guys are, but it is interesting that their named. But they it doesn't tell us that they're de- how they're devising iniquity and giving wicked counsel to the city. It doesn't say what it is, but I think we can come up with a lot of way, a lot of ideas there maybe. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Try to fly like the sermon. It would be like saying, "Hey, it's okay. God made you the way that you think you are, not the way that he says you are in his word." Right? I saw a great meme this morning. I could have brought it up in a sermon. You know, in 10,000 years when they're doing excavations, you know, when all they have is the hip bone, the hip, they'll be like, that's a woman, that's a man, because the woman's hips are 120 degrees and the man's are 90 degrees. It's like, without fail. Like, whatever they were doing to their bodies, it doesn't really actually matter, because when the bones are left, it's going to be obvious who was who. Um, Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. So try to deny it all you want, but. Yeah, we don't have the hips for childbearing. I'm sorry. Or, yeah, no, I'm not, I don't know if I'm sorry. Actually, I appreciate that. I don't want to bear children. Thanks for bearing children. Uh, a contemporary of Ezekiel is Micah. And did we study Micah? If we did, it was years ago. Listen to what Micah says. Micah 3. And I said, this is Micah preaching. Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people, ouch, and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces, like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron? Yeah. So that, so you see some, uh, but it's it's actually much more uh, vivid here. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make the people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark for them. The seers shall be ashamed and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. All right. So you see some similar language there in Micah.
1: Is it after? It's, just, it's
0: contemporary. Yeah, yeah except I, don't, I can't remember if Micah is in Babylon or if he's, in, he's still back in. Uh, Micah might have been in, not in Judah, but in Israel. Somebody who has a study Bible, probably look at the front and I'll tell you when Micah lived. And Nobody has a study Bible? All right. Okay. Yeah, peace, peace, peace where there is no peace. Yeah, the meat pots in the cauldron are very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that they chew up the people. Uh, but you can think of what Jesus says to the Pharisees, right? You who devour widows' houses the same idea right like consuming the people their wealth their strength their energy I don't know it's kind of a picture isn't it so uh, to Matt's point though there's a double there's a double judgment and there is for us too on the last day obviously you know hell, which prepared for the devil and the angels is for those who refused refused Christ call to repent right and then of course heaven and, and eternal life for those um who heeded the voice of the Spirit and repented and believed the gospel. It's the same judgment, and it's by the same word. It's actually the cross that stands right in the middle of that. The cross, as Jesus says, is good news for those who repent, but it's a stumbling block and a rock of offense who don't. Actually, Paul says that. Right? He's like, wait a minute, the same moment is both good news to some and judgment to others? Yeah. Yeah. And it all just has to do with the reception of the word. Do they repent and believe the gospel or not? That's it. And then it's one or the other. All right? We are meat in the cauldron. Oh, oh I'm going a little, I don't want to go much longer. Uh, hold on a second. There, there is something we want to do here. Oh, here's what I wanted to point out to you. The other thing I wanted to make sure we covered is over and over, no matter how the judgment is received by you, you know that he is the Lord. But what kind of Lord do you have? That's the difference, right? Is he a Lord of judgment, death, and destruction? Or is he the Lord of forgiveness, life, and salvation? But he's both, depending on...
2: Correct. Correct.
0: So this is your explanation for, like in Revelation, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Well, how is every tongue going to do that? Because not everybody's going to believe. Some say that means everybody will believe. Well, everybody will know, but I mean, it just, it's kind of hard to get our head around, but like, we'll look upon, we'll see the wounds and we like, that's our savior, even though he's eyes with burning fire and whirlwind and tempest and all this terrifying stuff, except we'll see the wounds. we like, no, that's Jesus. Whereas others, they won't see, recognize him. They'll only see this terrible judgment coming upon them because they won't see, they won't see him for who he is. Because I refused him that way. So the same vision, or the same oh, judgment. Interesting. Yeah. You
1: just it, I mean, I
0: Correct. This is the problem with preaching that I've experienced. Because I'll have this. I'll have people come out and some will say that was the best sermon I've heard in a long time, Pastor, it really comforted me. And I'll have other people say, just give me a sour look because they heard it the other way. I'm like, well, somebody help me out here. <laughs> you know? Sometimes it's just because you get hung up on, a, on a, some, something that indicts your own sin earlier in the sermon, maybe, so that when the gospel comes, you just you're completely deaf to it at that point. Right. Just experience
1: joy an
0: earthquake or something nearby. Hmm. Yeah, well, you do this with thunderstorms until the lightning hits you. You're like, wow, In this, I mean, it's just incredible. Look at the glory of God at work, and then the lightning hits the tree and it falls in your house. And you're like, well, that's not quite what I had in mind. Right. Yeah, and so the key, the key here is um, to that theologian of glory being a theologian of the cross a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is but you can only do that if you have God's word right so you can call the cross what it is forgiveness, life and salvation even though it looks like death judgment you know, for sin I mean, of course it does darkness, right when Christ was crucified and yet you see it as your life and hope. You see it by faith, not by sight, though. That's the key. Right. So that, I mean, that really describes our life as a church, right? As is, is asking, what does Jesus say? And sometimes having to actually just straight up deny our own experience. Jesus says he's with me. I don't really feel that way right now, but he is because he said so and he promised. And I have his word. I have, I have the promise of my baptism, you know, et cetera. So, this is my point with Ezekiel, right? There's, there's gospel here, right? The remnants being preserved. But even Ezekiel is having a hard time. <laughs> it's like, are you going to just kill everybody? And it's like, no, no, no. And uh, so I left you off because the rest of the chapter is actually wonderful gospel. We <laughs> have to wait till next time because I, I didn't think we'd get through it. Yep, cliffhanger. All right, let's close with prayer. If you want to read ahead, feel free. I'm not going to stop you. If you like, can't leave it there. So When you get home, right. read the rest. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed uh, your, your nature, um, your intent, your will for us in your holy word. Uh, we ask that you would send your spirit upon us, that we would trust uh, the promises that you have given us there in that word, um, and not trust our own experience so that uh, we can be confident that you do truly love us and that you want the best for us and that you will save us uh, now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin.